to the Uncaring Universe, the sci-fi and fantasy podcast hosted by me, Danny Soulfield Waitson, in partnership with Tor UK, my favourite publishers of sci-fi, fantasy and horror. For this episode, I'm joined by Zen Cho, author of the Regency fantasy novels Sorcerer to the Crown and The True Queen, which is out March 12th. We had a fascinating discussion about the benefits of writing fanfiction and sharing your work early. Cho explains what Blight and Punk is and the unique flavour of Commonwealth fantasy, as well as the lasting impact of the Industrial Revolution on literature, and Cho's tips for dealing with the difficulty of finishing a story. Hope you enjoyed this discussion as much as I did. Enjoy. Okay, hello Zen. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Very well, very well. And thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the podcast. Uh, I understand you are in Malaysia at the moment. That's right, yeah. Awesome. First things first, I always like to basically just hear in the author's own words, you know, what is the universe of Sorceress to the Crown and the True Queen? Um, so, so both books are set in um, an alternate form of... Um, well, uh, the world. <laughs> I was going to say Regency England, which is where which is where the book um, starts, where uh, Sorcerer to the Crown starts, um, around eighteen early eighteen hundreds, um, and it's about um, it's about magicians essentially in, in Regency England. So, sort of think, um, you know, the Jonathan Strange and Mister Norrell, that sort of subgenre of fantasy. Um, and um, it followed the first book, Sorcerer, follows the, the adventures of Zachariah's wife, who is England's first African sorcerer royal. Um, so he's kind of the head of all um, the magicians, um, and they don't like that very much. He's got lots of um, life problems because of it. Um, and um, in the second book, um, Zacharias and the other characters from the first book do appear, but it does uh, follow the, the adventures of a new set of characters, um, and it explores really the, the world outside um um, England, um, Sorcerer to the Crown is very much inspired by the Regency romance, you know, Georgette Hare, um, Jane Austen, you know, kind of um, women sort of kind of pretty frocks and, you know, gentlemen with, with top hats and that sort of thing. <laughs> um, and and um, and I was really interested in kind of just going a bit beyond that and kind of seeing, you know, what magic was like um, in the rest of the world. So the true queen follows the adventures of Muna, who's a young woman from um, the Malayan archipelago, uh, an island called Dendabait, which appears in the first book. Um, and she um, is under a curse. She's lost all her memories. Um, and the curse uh, she finds out is, is uh, killing her sister. So she then has to break the curse. In order to do that, she has to travel to Britain where she encounters some of the characters from the first book um, and also ends up getting drawn into intrigue about um, the succession to the fairy throne. Amazing. It's a killer elevator pitch. <laughs> and yeah, it's so interesting that the true queen is going to start to explore, you know, that magic system. But yeah, like a across the world, basically, on the other side of the world, which is something you don't usually see, I suppose, in this kind of genre. So I think that's going to set up some really interesting contrasts it's a, a subgenre i've seen I, i've read a few books in recently especially from from guests that have been on the podcast um genevieve cogman and her invisible oh, yeah. library series springs to mind yeah, yeah. also uh vic james and the um the gilded cage i can't remember yeah. now what the actual whole series is called um but yeah those books so yeah and, it, and it's an amazing setting i personally love it and it, and it seems like, for whatever reason, there's, um, you know, a strong appeal to that setting for, for you know, this 
real world time and age. What was it that really attracted you to it and, you know, made you decide to actually set your, not your first writings, of course, but your debut novel in that setting? Well, it was a really interesting question. And I, I think, um, I think for many people, as you say, um, the 19th century kind of continues to exert a lasting fascination. And I, I think that's because, you know, um, our modern world was really created in, in, at that time. You know, you've got the Industrial Revolution. You've got particularly relevant for Sorcerer and the True Queen. You've got the Empire, the British Empire, and, and the other empires um, uh, established by Western powers. And and so it was a time that was really transformative for the entire entire world. Um, and I think um, you know in in, in um, the anglophone in anglophone literature you don't really see you know there's loads there's loads in the 19th century so there's lots of writings uh, letters from that period and and about that period by people looking back um, and and that's true the fantasy genre as well um, but I don't think you see as much about um, uh, about what's happening in the rest of the world um, outside the kind of centers of power mm. um, at that time. And so that was something that really interested me. So I'm, I'm from Malaysia, that's why I'm here right now. Um, I, I live in the UK and have been for the past several years. But um, uh, I grew up in Malaysia and uh, reading kind of novels, um, reading books from um, America and from Britain, particularly Britain, because um, we're a former British colony. Um, and I, and I, I I was always very interested in that era that, you know, I read a lot um, from it as a child, you know, as I said, Austin, uh, Dickens as well, um, just a lot of the kind of, you know, what, these Victorian um, and Georgian kind of uh, novels um, and letters. Um, and and what's interesting, you know, is that is that it was a period during which uh, my, my side of the world was also undergoing enormous amount of change, um, really, really kind of directed directly caused by by the British frankly um, and um, but that's not really a perspective that you see a lot of in um, you know in books in English full mm. stop uh, much less fantasy so that was something I was really interested in uh, exploring I, I and and I think that that kind of you know the transformation that happened then with with implications that that survived to this day is why um, uh, so many people are interested in there certainly that's part of um, that's what draws me to it Mm. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And like you say, I think there are, you know, there's a, a fantastic, um, very encouraging kind of trend for novels that are at least um, becoming popular in the West that are very heavily set in the East. I know that's a very broad term, but, um, mm. you know, things like the translations of uh, Chichi and Lu's work, you know, the Chinese sci-fi, and then also RF Quang, um and the, the Poppy War series, but you, you do rarely find that kind of bridge. So something like your works where, as you say, you know, heavily inspired by that kind of colonial influence and, and from, you know, in your case, a Malaysian perspective, uh, but then also dealing with the the issues and the, 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 poli the politics of, of that kind of time in London. So I think this is what's so interesting about... Um, yeah, your your perspective and your your novels is is that kind of bridging of the gap. Yeah, I think of it as um, Commonwealth fantasy. <laughs> it's not a, <laughs> not a lot of it uh, so far. I, I think I think someone like Karen Lord could also be con considered, you know, Commonwealth fantasist. But it's not it's not a subcategory that's really uh, been a thing. Hmm. Um, uh, Lavit Hidar, the, the Israeli writer, um, I, I met. I, I sort of 
had a discussion with him about Commonwealth fantasy and then and then he sort of posted and said called it blight and punk because a weird kind of common ground that lots of people from former colonies of Britain have uh, and you know and people from Britain mm. have uh, is that they read Enid Blyton as children. Um, <laughs> she's not really a thing like in America. Um, interestingly, um, but yeah, I, I'm, not, I'm not crazy about the term. <laughs> you know. I, I think in a way it highlights the kind of contradictions of, of Commonwealth fantasy, you know, particularly writing, um, you know, identifying with that as, as somebody from a, a former colony. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So um, when did you move to Britain and what age? Uh, I moved there when I was 17 for school. Okay, fantastic. Yeah. So, so yeah, you, you grew up for, for the most part, I suppose, of your childhood in, in Malaysia. Um, oh, at what age did you start writing seriously? Um, yeah, well, it's a good question. I started writing um, very young, um, you know, maybe around five or six. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wouldn't say I started taking it seriously till about, well, I always took it seriously in a way, actually. I, I, I did it pretty consistently, um, but I just never could never really figure out how to finish stories. So I, I have lots of beginnings of stories like you know sort of write write loads of beginnings at, at age eight or whatever yeah um i think i think i started um and then i, I started writing fanfic when, when i was 16 and that was that was around 15 16 that was that was when i started sharing it with the with other people mm-hmm. um so I, you know i used to write loads as a child but then i kind of spling myself in front of the screen whenever my parents my anyone in my family came by <laughs> um i was writing a computer um and um and I, I, I never shared it with anyone. And it was really when I kind of started to write fan, fanfic, I started, you know, publishing it essentially mm. uh, for other people to read. Um, and I, so I suppose in a way I started taking it seriously from then. Uh, I, I only started writing for publication, I think quite late in um, sort of in my uh, early 20s. Um, and, and I think part of the, and to me, that's kind of a delay because I spent so much. I spent so much of my life writing, um, but I think part of the reason is because um, it took me a really long time to work out my subject. Um, mm. You know, I, I think I could feel that I, I felt that it'd be a bit boring if I was just writing. Um, you know, what what I'd read, um, which which was stories set in you know Britain or America about British or American people. But equally, because I'd never really read anything else. Um, it was very difficult for me to work out how to do something different, um, and and that that took me a lot of time. Um, but you know, I got there. <laughs> <laughs> you certainly did, and I think finishing stories never gets easier. No. <laughs> okay, so interesting that you mentioned um, kind of growing up and honing your craft doing fanfic and sharing it online because this is always a fascinating subject. I think, like, where do you draw the line between? Um, basically keeping your work to yourself to hone your craft and wait until it's ready and just getting it out there and sharing it with the world and and seeing how people react to it so what's what's your experience been of of that of just sharing some of your early writings you know with uh with the internet um i mean it's a bit it was a bit wild wild west wasn't it isn't it i mean you can kind of Anyone can publish anything. Hmm. Um, for me, I, I always ha- had a sense that you know I wasn't ready yet. You know, I think I had a sense that I was working towards something um, that um, hadn't that I hadn't worked out um, in in my writing. So so I mean, I was ac- so it's actually 
I was I, I think I, I sort of shared things later than I than I could have done or that than, than maybe another person would have done. Um, so I, I started writing fanfic when I was fifteen or sixteen, but I started reading it much younger than that. You know, at about eleven or twelve, mm. I was reading all sorts of things on the internet. My, my parents were probably quite concerned to hear that I'd read. <laughs> um, but um, but you know, I only started and then and then I started writing, but I only really started sharing it when I you know I started making friends in fandom um, online who who expressed an interest, and I felt kind of supported to 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 share that stuff. Um, and um, and I think um, for me. I, I, I always had this um, you know, kind of per- perfectionism, which which actually can be very damaging because I think I think uh, you need to be able, willing to fail to really create freely, mm. um, and you need to be not not being you know being afraid of failure um, can be very um, can can contribute to writer's block, for example. Um, so, but I, I always fall in that kind of line of um, you know it's not quite perfect yet. I'm not willing to share it with anyone else. Um, mm. And um, actually, in a way, fandom helped a lot with that writing fanfic because it's such a communal uh, endeavor. You know, people write kind of their works of progress and they share them before they're finished for, you know, feedback and a sort of discussion and and a kind of two-way process. Um, And and writers and readers are very much, you know, one community. So Mm -hmm. I think think that definitely helped me kind of relax a bit and and kind of share what I I was doing. Okay, cool. So... Would you recommend it then as a process to most people, storytellers in general, or do you think it was quite a, you know, specific thing to you in that time? I think if you're going to write fanfic, you just will. <laughs> well, not even necessarily just fanfic, but I mean just that process of like, you know, just just like getting out there in the world and getting that feedback. Publishing yourself. I, I think what's really important actually um, is having a, having kind of some kind of community. Um, you know, having people uh, who are really are interested in stories in the same way that you are, um, and being able to share what you're thinking and what you're doing in that space with them, and and, and then have and reading what they do and, and having that, you know, back and forth, um, and and so I don't because I think that that's what you need for development. That's what you need for for not feeling you know really alone while you're kind of you know bashing out your novel <laughs> for years on end, um, and. Um, and that, that's how you improve as well, where you kind of refine your, your thoughts and your writing in conversation with other, other writers. Um, I, I think it's less important to, um, you know, to kind of publish. I think there can be with, with new writers or people who are really, you know, really keen on, on, um, on a, as, a, as it were, the kind of external rewards of writing. Um, you know, there can be a, a tendency to rush to publication, to be like, right, I'm just going to self-publish, or, you know, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. Um, and I think there always has to be a balance struck between, you know, perfecting your craft and, and sharing that um, with the wider world. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think you need to kind of publish the first thing you've ever written. Um, I personally wrote two novel-length stories before um, before I, I published Sorcerer to the Crown, for example. I'd written short and published short fiction before then as well. Um, and I'm not saying that my mine is a model that everyone should take because maybe I'm a bit slower than other people. But, um, but you know, it, it, there's a lot of rubbish in the world. <laughs> there's a lot of bad <laughs> writing in the world. So it's worth it to kind of take a bit of time to make sure you're not contributing to that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So that touches on something else I wanted to ask you about, um, you know, the, the process of figuring out what what is good in terms of what you've written. But before... I ask you that. I just want to touch on the short fiction that you mentioned because you've already been fairly prolific as a short fiction writer. 
and um, you know if anybody uh, signs up to your newsletter that you know you share stuff through that um, and and yeah there's just a lot you've already done so what was your you know your journey and your decision making process from writing short fiction essentially to making the jump into novels um, I would say I'm not a natural short fiction writer in the sense that what I'm really interested in fiction is um, is kind of character, development of character and, and, and ex- exploration of a world. And I think both those things can be done um, in a way more effectively at a, at a longer length, so in a novel, in the space of a novel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I really like the kind of immersion, you know, in a world and a story that you get from a novel, um, which I think is hard to replicate at the short story. Like short fiction is very good at other things that, that novels can't do. Um, you know, they're just, they're just different forms. Um, but there's definitely short story writers that I love as well, but I, I knew I always wanted to write novels. Um, but um, I just didn't really know how to at the beginning. Um, you know, writing, you know, 100,000 words, whatever it is, uh, requires a lot of stamina, it requires a lot of time, it requires a lot of sort of sustained thought about one story. Um, and for me, that's, it's not the case for other people, but for me, writing short stories was in a way kind of, you know, excite, just exercising my powers and trying to trying to work my way up to um, to writing longer fiction um, I you know I do enjoy doing a short story though and um, the funny thing is you know after you work with novels for such a long you know you spend you spend a year or you know several years write, writing a novel then going back to write a short story you kind of think like oh god I've forgotten how to do this <laughs> um, so um, so I was very pleased to be able to, to I'm not that prolific actually I haven't published a, a new short story in several years until until um, no- November last year um, but I was very pleased to be able to kind of dip my toe back in the waters and um, I'm starting to do kind of short fiction as well as my novels um, now awesome it's good to hear what would you say was the one most important thing that writing short fiction taught you about writing or storytelling in general um this well, this won't be enough. the first thing that comes to mind. Isn't something that's about inherent to the form. Um, it, it's more. It's more kind of a, a result of my my personal experience with writing, and you know, and and, de- and my development and so on. But what it taught me actually, because because when I started writing short fiction for publication, um, it was um, it was stuff that I'd never really written before, but had always been kind of trying to work my way towards. So. It was, you know, fantasy that was set in Malaysia or about Malaysian characters, um, and often used, for example, a kind of, you know, kind of local patois, you know, Malay words, and and so on, just just mixed in as as we would use in Malaysia when we were speaking to each other. Um, and I think writing that and and selling that to markets, eventually publishing a short fiction collection, um, what that whole experience taught me was that there was an audience for that, and that. There was an audience for that that wasn't just you know in Malaysia, mm. um, but but that people would be interested um, in my voice um, and in these this type of these types of stories, you know, stories that I'd never really read anywhere else before, um, and and in some ways just hadn't been done. Um, so so that was you know that was incredibly valuable for me, and I think really important um, in giving me the confidence to to write to to kind of embark on the the to me, bigger venture of writing a novel. Cool, very cool. Yeah, I think it. I think it is a, a really important form in general. We were um, Lulu, so a friend of mine that joined me for the episodes I did at the end, and 
beginning of uh, the turn of this year when we talked about our favourite books of 2018 and the ones we're excited about for 2019. Um, there are a lot of uh, short short fiction and kind of novelettes or novellas basically that, that got brought up and one prediction Lulu made was that this year we might see a real kind of resurgence almost. Uh, not that it's ever gone away, but like, you know, it, um, novellas and and kind of collections of short fiction becoming even more mainstream you know is that yeah. something that you can see happening and, and you'd like to see happen well i think i think um for sff i think short fiction has always been um you know an important element of the 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 market the, mm-hmm. the industry the field um you know some and um i think i think that's right that we're seeing certainly more novellas as well being written that there seems to be you know it seems to kind of fit the, the age, you know, people talk about you know the digital age, people being kind of in a rush, um, and uh, and also reading much more in ebook, um, and hmm. kind of the novella form seems to lend itself quite well to that. Um, you know, you get you get some of the larger scope of a novel, but you you can finish it, you know, much more quickly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and also, yeah. it seems like it's um it's something that publishers, you know, on the actual business side can take a bit more of a risk on right because if you if you were to submit i mean i'm not an expert i don't work in publishing but it feels to me like if you were querying a novel that was just you know basically batshit crazy (laughs) like (laughs) madly inventive it it might seem like a bit of a commercial risk but if it's a short story or a novella um you know or in like a collection it's something that they can they can do with a bit of a lower risk see if it gets that audience and then kind of go from there so in a way it, it seems like quite an exciting yeah um I, I don't know if that's true about short story collections i think i think it's partly true about novellas i mean i speaking just about the sff field because that's what i know um i think that is true of novellas because um as far as i can tell the the publishers who are doing lots of novellas i mean the, the main one to tour.com mm-hmm. um basically treat them like short fiction which means that there's actually significantly less investment for them up front than, than a novella, uh, yeah. than a novel, sorry. Um, you know, um, whereas um, with a novel, you know, you've got these kind of, you've got to pay, you, know, you, you don't have to pay significant advances <laughs> because lots of people get very poor advances for their novels. But uh, generally the standard amongst Big Five, if you, you get paid some sort of advance, and there's also you know, all that marketing and so on and so forth, and it's a crowded market. Um, whereas short fiction, you know, you, you get you tend to get paid a flat fee and so on. So I think I think novellas tend to be dealt with kind of somewhere in between the two. Um, and so I, so I think that's right that you can, as a publisher, take on less risk when you're publishing a novella just just because of the way you structure it. Hmm. Um, I mean, frankly, as a writer, um, if you write a novella. There's, there's not that many markets um, you can sell them to still, um, even though they're kind of undergoing this resurgence. Um, and, I, and I think work quite well um, in self-publishing, particularly in ebook. Um, but if you want, to, if you want somebody else to publish it for you, there aren't that many people. Um, but um, I, I think um, I should say that with no- novels, though, you, you know, you, publishers could still you can still kind of get r- risky work. I think you just have to look at um, uh, publishers that that just don't make that much money or don't, don't pay their writers <laughs> that much. There's, there's often kind of a, an inverse um, re- relationship between how daring or risky or different work is and kind of how, how much money anyone's willing to put into it up front. Um, there you go. Excellent. That's a fascinating insight. <laughs> okay, so t- to return to the earlier question that I mentioned, you know, what are some heuristics or, or just, again, kind of instincts you have for deciding what works 
you know when you're when you're writing for the first time or you're going back over making making edits to the true queen or whatever other secret projects you've got on the go like how do you feel what works and what's good and what to let go <laughs> um i wish i knew the answer to this <laughs> <laughs> i think um it's a really tough one i think because you know again it's all kind of um it's all about kind of striking that balance because on the one hand you have you have as an artist an artistic vision you have a sense you know you have taste and you have you have a sense of what you're gunning for um and um and it's really important to to hew to that to kind of stay true to it and keep faith with it because that's what you have to give um uh and and you know and frankly if you're if you're publishing in capitalism which we all are it's there's lots of things there's lots of pressures to to desert that and, and try to do the, the more commercial thing or the more marketable thing the difficulty with that is that nobody nobody really knows what will sell mm-hmm. um i think that's kind of the irony about publishing that even the largest publishers they're are only guessing because everyone's heard of you know books that they've thrown lots of money at and that flop um and books that you know nobody thought were going to be a success and, and they you know and they were wildly successful mm-hmm. so so everyone's kind of publishing is a bit like everyone's just kind of throwing things at the wall hope and seeing what sticks um so i always think you know there's, there's no point trying to write to the market um really because you know very few people really know nobody really knows what the market is in a way um and if you write something that feels true to yourself there's bound to be people who uh who connect with that because if you manage to kind of convey your vision you know that's kind of what art is all about um but um on the other hand uh obviously you need to get feedback to improve because you're not the best judge of your own work so i think um i think for me you know that's just kind of an ongoing struggle i think one thing one thing i would say is that you know you're you're rarely in a position to kind of judge well while you're writing the draft so you know that kind of um cliche but writing shitty first drafts i'd always say to any writer to kind of just try to finish any story you're know, talking about the difficulty of finishing stories that's the hardest part mm. in a way so so make sure you finish whatever and then give yourself a bit of time go back and look at it later um and don't don't kind of let your feelings about the process make you think that the result is going to be rubbish mm-hmm. um you know but but equally you know approach your work in a kind of critical way kind of think you know is this the best that i can do um i love this line i was reading this um one of my favorite books about writing and publishing is a collection of letters by Ursula Nordstrom called uh, Dear Genius and she was an editor at Harper Collins um in America and she edited many of the, you know America's greatest kind of children's writers so mm. uh, she edited Harriet the Spy she edited Mar- uh, Maurice Sendak um you know people like that and um and she used to write to her, her writers apparently she used to to you know annotate their manuscripts and and say and and say this is not good enough for you um, <laughs> which is a which is a, you know a great way of saying you know this you, this needs this needs sorting out it's like you know kind of implying you know i believe in you but also this isn't up to your standard yeah um, that's so, a very so, <laughs> tactful <laughs> right. way of saying it i mean you know she she was a great editor for a reason so i think um i think that's one way you know you kind of have to think about it that way as as a writer yourself you know this is this good enough for me is this is good enough for what i'm trying to do what i think you know what i'm um what i think i should be able to do um and and you never really get there you never really um produce something that's quite up to your standards mm. um but you have to kind of keep trying for it 
Yeah, definitely, definitely. And that's, yeah, it's a really interesting way of framing it because one of the bits of tension I've always had with that kind of advice of, you know, putting something in the drawer and, you know, not looking at it for a while is, is that thing of like, well, yeah, how do I, how do I know what my standard is? You know, because obviously it's, it's so nebulous, you know, it's like, well, if I know what I'm capable of and what I want to do, why can't I see that right now? But I suppose, yeah, yeah, the truth is, like you say, that sometimes it takes a bit of time to just realize, um, well, actually, yeah, I I haven't been able to think of a way to improve it. (laughs) So that bit must be okay. Or if you do think of a way to improve it, then, you know, it feels, you know, it feels ready to be improved. So I suppose that's the key is you you can put it away and come back to it and realize that actually it was it was okay. And either either outcome is for the best. Yeah, I think um, for me, the time, you know, put it in a drawer or go away um, thing, thing is, is about creating distance from the work because um, maybe because I'm a very forgetful sort of person and don't have a great memory. Actually, if I leave things long enough and come, you know, if I leave some a piece of writing long enough, come back, I can read it as though I had, I didn't write it myself. You know, I forget having written it. <laughs> <laughs> perfect. Um, and that, well, well, exactly. You know, that that's kind of the perfect um, kind of state of mind to, to read something in. Because then yeah. you're kind of like, wow, you know, that's a, that's a load of bullshit. Like, or, <laughs> or you're like, oh, this is actually pretty good. You know, I, I'd enjoy reading this if I hadn't written it myself. Yeah. Um, so it, that can be hard, though, having enough time to do that, um, especially with something like a novel where, you know, you spend so long mm. in that world and in that mindset that um, extricating yourself from that is very, very difficult. Yeah, definitely. I have a, uh, a kind of similar process when um, I hear something I've written be voiced. So my day oh, job yeah. as, a, as a games writer, and when I hear a voice actor read something that I've written, it's usually um, painfully clear, you know, <laughs> whether the line works or it doesn't, as soon as you hear it in that other person's voice. So like <laughs> you say, I think, yeah, it all comes down to distance, I suppose. I was just going to say that reminds me of, I think it might have been Zadie Smith or, or someone like that saying that, um, you know, when you read out your work, you, you kind of see all these festivals, whatever, you see all these writers kind of frantically scribbling because as you read them out, um, you, you, you re- read out your words, you realize, you know, oh, I should change that sentence or that, that doesn't sound great, you know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, you need to hear it in someone else's voice, whether that's, yeah, or, or forgetting it is your own voice. That makes sense. <laughs> okay, so pretty much only got time for one more question. It's crazy how the time has flown. Um, but this is kind of an essential question I love to ask everyone. You know, on an average day, as insofar as they exist or don't, what is your daily routine? What's important to you to getting the words down on the page? Well, as as um, as you know, I have a four-month-old, so <laughs> I haven't had an <laughs> average day since he arrived. Um, but... Um, What's important for me in terms of uh, my routine is that I'm I'm not one of those writers who binges. You know, some people like going a period without doing any writing, and they and then they do like ten thousand words in a day, whatever. Hmm. Um, I'm I'm more kind of slow and steady. So what's important to me is getting some words down um, every day or almost every day, um, and it doesn't matter um, if if it's not a lot of words, um, so long as I've done something to kind of keep my head in the game, um, and. Um, and I, you know, apart from that, I have no strict rule about when I do it, um, how I do it, um, and <laughs> and uh, I, I I often leave it to the end of the day um, more than I should. 
um, you know, lots of people say that they do their best work at, say, in the morning, whatever, and I think that's actually true for me. But in fact, what actually happens is it'll happen at kind of 11.30, just before I go to bed. You know, I <laughs> frantically write something just so I can say I've done, I've done something with the day. Yeah, something um, something is better than nothing when it comes down to right. it. Yeah, but, um, but, you know, you can you can write a whole novel that way. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then you can edit it in the morning. That's right. <laughs> okay, amazing. Well... Yeah, we're we're pretty much at the uh, the end of our time, which is which is crazy. But yeah, thank you so much for taking the time. It's been uh, it's been a real pleasure talking to you, and yeah, can't wait to get my hands on the True Queen. Do you have plans? So the the True Queen for anyone that's not read it yet, um, which will be most people, <laughs> it's not out, is a standalone novel set in the same universe as Sorceress of the Crown. So. Have you announced, or do you have, or can you talk about plans for further books in that universe, or you know, will you be wanting to um, ex- explore something else afterwards? Basically, what's coming next? What should we look out for? Yeah, I'm I'm not in a position to announce anything, but um, I I should have. Um, I'll, I'll probably be doing stuff that's outside the universe for the next uh, couple of years. Um, I, I will have uh, projects to announce um, in time, uh, which um, are. Are quite different from Sorcerer's of Crime, but I hope people who enjoyed that, um, that and the True Queen will enjoy these as well. Just t- doing something a little different. Amazing. And where's the best people for uh, the best place for people to find out about that? Should they subscribe to your newsletter, follow you on Twitter? Yeah, well, I'm I'm pretty active in Twitter. Um, I'm Zenaldehyde in Twitter. That's Zen um, Aldehyde A L D E H Y D E um, because aldehydes um, are made up of carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen. Um, and um, and uh, I also have a newsletter, as you have mentioned, um, and you can sign up to that on my website. That's the most reliable place to get information about new releases. Perfect. Cool. Well, thank you once again. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And as ever, if you can leave a comment on iTunes, where you can also subscribe. You can listen on SoundCloud. Maybe that's where you listen to it now. Leave a comment. Tweet about it. It all helps get this fantastic wisdom and insight out there to the people that really need it so yeah thank you for listening and thank you Sam bye